Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the slow but important progress that's been made in the last 10 years of efforts towards sensible gun control and accountability for gun manufacturers, as well as the activists pushing the issue. Clips today are from What Next, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, the PBS NewsHour, and Breaking the Sound Barrier, with additional members-only clips from The David Pakman Show and The Brian Lehrer Show. Nicole had a powerful ally in the White House. Then-President Obama had decided to make gun control legislation a priority. That's how Nicole and other Sandy Hook parents found themselves traveling to D.C., just weeks after their children's deaths, to advocate for expanded background checks for gun purchases. That was the first time I'd ever been to D.C. Oh, wow. And and I got to know the the halls of Congress fairly intimately. And I remember I used to kind of run my fingers along the wall as I'd be walking because um, it, it was so surreal how different life had changed so quickly. And I, and I wasn't quite sure if this was like reality or some horrible nightmare I couldn't wake from. But um, some people might feel, oh my gosh, you're talking to a U.S. senator. I just saw another dad, another mom um, in front of me. And that's the same way, you know, talking with um, President Obama and then Vice President Biden. These were parents. Um, it wasn't the president. It wasn't the vice president. It was just a dad who couldn't imagine what it would be like um, if he was in my shoes. You said that some senators wept when they met Yeah, with oh you. gosh, yeah. There were quite a few senators that, that cried in front of us. And we sometimes cried as well, but more often than not, they became more emotional. And I think I lost faith in some people who became emotional, um, promised to do whatever they could, and then still voted no. You know, I almost preferred the senators who were almost a little bit more in my face and a little bit negative about, I'm not going to sign for this no matter what, you know, and this isn't going to give you closure and you need to move on because at least they were very, they were honest. Exactly. I'd prefer that authenticity rather than someone who weeps and then goes against me. Uh, and I think that was for me, a uh, an unfortunate baptism in what politics really is. You want to name names here? I never name names. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, it's just not my way. <laughs> when was it clear that the background check legislation was not going to pass? You know, it was... Um, it wasn't clear to me until we were actually doing the votes uh, in the chamber. You know, we made it through cloture. I didn't even know what cloture was until that were point. Were you there? I was there. Oh, yeah. I was I was up in the gallery and um, trying to, you know, trying to count the votes on my hands because you're not allowed to bring any cell phones or anything in. And uh, watching the, you know, the yays and the nays mount up and totally losing track. And then when, when Vice President Biden said, The amendment is not agreed to. There was just this huge amount of deflation looking down at the senators, some of them who could not look up at us, uh, some who rather looked up at us a little bit defiantly, if I'm totally honest. And then hearing one of the other survivors uh, from um, another shooting yell out. The order in the Senate. It was a horrible moment. And then going back um, into the Oval Office with a uh, you know, very angry President Obama before we then went out to the Rose Garden to speak. Um, and, you know, he talked about this is a shameful day in our history, and, and I completely agree with him. But the fact is, most of these senators could not offer any good reason why we wouldn't want to make it harder for criminals and those with severe mental illnesses to buy a gun. There were no coherent arguments as to why we wouldn't do this. It came down to politics. I wonder how that political experience, which, I mean, you've called it soul crushing. Mm. I wonder how it shaped the direction of your organization, Sandy Hook Promise, because you'd already formed the group. Mm -hmm. But in the months and years since, it's been notable to me that you've been remarkably nonpartisan as a a gun safety group goes. Mm -hmm. You know, it failed in April 2013. And... When when something as simple as a background check failed and became you know political, um, 
we took a step back and said, I mean, it's it's like any problem. If you can't solve it one way, you figure out a different way. So we kind of went dark for a little over a year while we did a lot of research, a lot of groups with gun owners and non-gun owners. And we talked to a lot of educators and we really studied social change. How do you, you know, everything from civil rights up to marriage equality, how do you take um, a partisan issue and find the common ground. And that's when we really started understanding the levers that you pull in social change around legal levers, around um, education and grassroots voice, around programs and generational change and behavioral change, and that you need to change behaviors before you can change or enact policies to enforce and, and reinforce those behaviors. That seems so much harder to me. Oh, it's, it's long-term. It's a long-term thing, but this is a massive problem that's not going away. So you're not going to, I mean, passing background checks would not have stopped gun violence in America. You need to do all the other levers as well. So that's when we said, well, no one's focusing on programs. No one's focusing on education. So we will turn our efforts there. And we still advocate for change at a state and federal level. But um, the majority of the work that Sandy Hook Promise does is on education it's interesting to hear you say that if you'd passed background checks, you don't actually think that would have done much because you spent so much time advocating for it. And I feel like there was a lot invested in that effort. It's pretty remarkable oh, yeah. to me. I don't I'm not saying it wouldn't have done much. It it would have done a lot. What I said was it would not solve the issue of gun violence in our country. There, this is a complex and multifaceted issue and requires a lot of things. Having background checks would certainly ensure more responsibility in terms of who can access a gun and buy a, a firearm legally, but it's, it's, it's something that wouldn't have solved on its own the issue of gun violence in America. Although I think if it had passed, a lot of people would have just kind of, you know, clapped their hands and said, that's it, we did it, let's move on to something else. Whereas there's so much more change that's needed to create a safer environment. What would you say to someone who might say to you, intervening with mental health is great, background checks are great, but in the United States, there's this bigger problem of the fact that there's a gun out there for every man, woman, and child who lives here, probably more. And in the end, the fact that we have these dangerous objects scattered around the country and very accessible, that's the bigger problem. I think the the number of guns and the easy uh, accessibility to them is a significant problem. However, I don't think that's a problem that is going to go away. Um, there is a huge amount of pride in gun ownership in America. Obviously, the Second Amendment provides a lot of protections. And that is a challenge not to take on right now in terms of, I think the, the bigger win right now is focusing on safe storage. You know, for all those, and you're right, it is more guns out there than people. Um, but if, if everyone practiced safe storage, uh, then we wouldn't see, um, you know, the tens of, uh, several 10,000 deaths by suicide, um, because, of, or, or the school shootings where the kids are bringing the guns from the home without their parents' knowledge. So I think you're prioritizing. Um, yeah, you got to prioritize. If the guns are there, that's not going to change. So how do we ensure appropriate access and responsible ownership? Um, and, and if we get those two right, then I think you'd see the level of gun violence go down considerably. It is hard to believe now, but there was a time when being able to safely take a hammer to it was one of its biggest selling points. Quote, Hammer the hammer of a loaded Ivor Johnson revolver without the fear of discharge. You take no risk. This gun is so safe you can literally take a hammer to it and it will not go off by mistake. And then there's this one. This ad has a gun in the hands of a little girl. Papa says it won't hurt us. Accidental discharge impossible. Given the aggressive, sensational culture around gun ownership in this country today, it is almost impossible to believe that ads for guns ever look this benign. 
Here's a little boy who just wants to hunt some rabbits. This is from the early 1900s. The simplicity of the Remington action ensures safety and saves repair bills. Advertisements for guns in this country look nothing like this anymore. These are the ads from Remington, the same company that made that ad with the boy and the bunny more than 100 years ago. You see the silhouette of a soldier here using the gun being advertised. The copy says, quote, when you need to perform under pressure, the Bushmaster weapon delivers, implying that you, too, can do whatever this soldier can do as long as this gun is in your hands. How about this one? This weapon is tested and proven reliable in the most brutal conditions on Earth. It's the uncompromising choice when you demand a rifle as mission adaptable as you are. It is, quote, the ultimate military combat weapon system. Last one, quote, consider your man card reissued. The fine print reads, if it's good enough for the professional, it is good enough for you. The gun in this ad is a military-style weapon similar to an AR-15 called the Bushman 223 rifle, made by the company Remington. It is the exact same weapon used in the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. That weapon is so efficient, so easy to use, it only took the gunman 264 seconds to kill six adults and 20 more little boys and girls. In 2014, some of the Sandy Hook families sued Remington, the manufacturer of the gun that killed their children, in a wrongful death lawsuit. And that case might sound like a no-brainer, but it really was an extraordinary legal long shot. That's because guns are unlike any other consumer product. The companies that make them are protected by a federal law that essentially shields gun manufacturers from accountability after their products are used to murder people. And so to get around that law, the family suing Remington tried out a new legal strategy. They argued that Remington was improperly marketing their AR-15-style weapon to civilians. The families argued that Remington was telling people that a gun built for military-style combat could and should also be used in everyday civilian life. And as evidence, they presented these ads, the ones that Remington said would make you a man. The ones that were battle-tested, meant for combat. The ones that were, according to Remington, good enough for professionals and good enough for you. Their lawyer used an analogy in court, one that makes their argument incredibly easy to understand. Can you imagine Ford Motor Company advertising one of their cars to go run over people? Who would hesitate for a second to hold Ford accountable for that? That makes sense, right? You don't tell consumers to buy your baseball bat because it's good for breaking into people's houses. You don't sell someone a pair of shoes on the basis that it will help them sneak a bomb on a plane. And so by that logic, you shouldn't be able to sell someone a gun on the basis that it can annihilate scores of people in a matter of minutes, just like the soldiers in combat do. This case has been dragging on for seven years. And today, Remington agreed to a settlement. The company that made the gun that killed 26 people at Sandy Hook Elementary School, it agreed today to pay the families of those victims $73 million. That is believed to be the largest settlement ever between a gun manufacturer and the families of the people killed by its product. For the families of the victims, though, this lawsuit was never about money. It was about accountability. It was about getting some semblance of justice after their loved ones, their little children, were gunned down. And it was also about information. As part of any legal proceeding like this one, the parties involved are expected to turn over what is called discovery. Put simply, discovery is any record or document or communication that could be in any way relevant to the lawsuit. And so with this lawsuit... The Sandy Hook families hope to obtain through the discovery process some insight into how these gun companies operate and how they make decisions around marketing their products. As a condition of this settlement, the families are allowed to publicize what they learned from the thousands and thousands of documents turned over by Remington over the course of this trial. These are documents that Remington has fought 
tooth and nail to keep out of the public eye. The families who brought this suit believe that bringing these documents to light will help prevent the next mass shooting. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. What we really need is action. Because we can say, yes, we're going to do all these things, thoughts and prayers. What we need more than that is action. Please, this is the 18th one this year. That's unacceptable. We're children. You guys are are the adults. You need to take some action and play a role. Work together, come over your politics, and get something done. That was the day after the massacre that you had the presence of mind, David, to talk about what needs to be done in this country, given the horrific attack you had just experienced. Um, Can you talk about, from then to now, what you are calling for, what you've gone through? Thank you so much for joining us uh, from school. You're at Harvard now, a student in Cambridge. Yeah, you know, it's amazing to look back at that um, and think about all the things that have changed in the in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. And, you know, the couple of months after that, leading up to midterms, uh, we changed gun laws in Florida, a deeply Republican legislature that has a basically the NRA has a stranglehold over uh, despite, you know, basically everybody in the establishment thinking it was impossible. We did change gun laws there uh, and we were get, we were able to force the hand of the Florida state legislature to uh, get over their politics and work together to actually do something. Um, in the time since Parkland, we passed nearly uh, well over 50 gun laws at the state level. Uh, we changed the Dickey Amendment so that we're able to get uh, the CDC to study the effectiveness of gun laws at the state level and gotten them funding. Um, and on top of that, we have you know some of the most pro-gun violence prevention candidates, at least on paper, uh, ever elected in American history. Now it's about making them act. Uh, and the reason, uh, the thing that we're calling for right now is specifically for President Biden to do ever, even more that is within his executive power to act uh, to address gun violence. And two of those things are creating an off- a office, a national office of gun violence prevention, and a director of uh, a national director of gun violence prevention that create can work together to create a comprehensive plan to address gun violence from the federal government and not create just a piecemeal piece of legislation that's just universal background checks and one other thing, or just universal background checks, but comes up with a comprehensive plan for the federal government to address gun violence, um, regardless of what's happening in the Senate. And, and David, I wanted to ask you, last year, a video of Republican Congress member Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene heckling you on a Capitol Hill emerge. She was later removed from the House Committee on Education and Labor. Uh, and in July, Congress member Greene suggested that at an Alabama fundraiser that Southerners shoot door-to-door COVID-19 vaccinators. Your reaction to this kind of language coming from uh, elected officials? My reaction to it is that um, all of our generations need to do better. Um, our, you know, younger generations need to step up, but we need to learn from the mistakes of the past and understand that, you know, uh, in the beginning, when we were starting out, I would say that we, we don't have the leaders that we need to address gun violence. But I've realized in the time since uh, we do have some of the leaders, we just don't have enough. Uh, and unfortunately, with that type of immature, foolish, disgustingly just intolerant rhetoric and violent rhetoric that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene perpetuates, she ends up harming our country a lot more and stops us from addressing the serious challenges that are facing everyday Americans 
every single day, um, from gun violence to income inequality to, um, you know, people just struggling to get enough food on their table on a daily basis. Uh, when a representative like Marjorie Taylor Greene goes out there and says these outrageous and inflammatory remarks, she's not actually helping anybody but herself and her fundraising goals. You know, when she chases after me when I was 18 years old uh, and is calling me horrible things, she's not actually working to help end gun violence. She's not actually working to help her constituents. She's working to help herself. And we need leaders that are selfless and not selfish. And that is exactly what Marjorie Taylor Greene is. David, how can you talk about the shock market, what you have just launched? Yeah, so the shockmarket.org is a website that tallies the number of gun deaths that have happened uh, since President Biden took office. Um, unfortunately, gun violence has gotten worse over the past couple of years uh, as a result of COVID and the, ma- you know, uh, the massive surge in gun sales that have happened. As a result of that, when I was starting out, we had about 40,000 gun deaths a year on average in the United States. And now we're seeing on average about 45,000 a year, um, most of which are suicides, but are still nonetheless preventable. Um, and that's part of what this website is about. It's about realizing that, look, we cannot be just saying, you know, objectively, uh, sorry, objectively, Joe Biden, President Biden is better than Donald Trump is on guns. But that Trump is the bar. If, if, if Trump is the bar, he's the floor. He's not the ceiling. And liberals and Democrats and everybody across the country needs to be demanding that every president, no matter their party, do as much as it as is in their power to address gun violence. And right now, President Biden, frankly, is not doing that. He's done some some work, but it's the same thing like being at school. I can do half my assignment and get a D, or I can do all of my assignment and get an A. And right now, President Biden is failing. Mm. Very quickly, uh, your response to this unprecedented lawsuit, um, the families of Sandy Hook suing the gun company, the manufacturer, saying it advertised um, to uh, people to use their weapons, um, ultimately the one used at Sandy Hook. Your response to this, David? The reality is uh, the way that that lawsuit ended up working out, uh, from my understanding, was essentially it was very through a very narrow lens of going after a uh, a law outlying basically uh, the advertisement of uh, illegal activities uh, in the state of Connecticut. Um, it's still left in place, uh, PLACA, which is the law that stops um, individuals from being able to sue gun man- manufacturers with very few exceptions. Um, and, you know, although I obviously hope that this settlement helps bring some amount of closure to people, I think the reality is for most, you know, people that have experienced this type of horrific violence. But the only real form of closure is these things not happening anymore, because we know that they don't happen in basically any other high income country. And they don't have they certainly don't have to happen here. So I, I think the reality is that uh, PLACA, that law that protects gun manufacturers is still in place. And President Biden, I actually have a video of this at our uh, town hall in 2019, uh, when we were interviewing all of the presidential candidates about what they were going to do about gun violence. He said the number one thing that we could do to change gun violence and reduce gun violence in this country would be to stand up and fight against PLACA. And while it would require an act of Congress to do that, President Biden's very own Attorney General Garland has repeatedly gone out and defended PLACA in court and while testifying in front of Congress. And that is just one of many things that we've been extremely disappointed to see from Biden. Because the White House, frankly, the reason why they're doing this and they're not acting more or talking more about gun violence is because they're afraid of midterms. When I'm going to be completely honest here, if they're doing this for purely strategic reasons, it's pretty stupid of them because their approval rating is already in the toilet and they're already going to lose the House and they're probably going to lose the Senate, too. And they need to act to address gun violence right now because this is, gun violence in America is not politics. It is a matter of life and death. And we can't wait six months or a couple more months until midterms to see how things pan out and risk losing the House and Senate for another decade because of President Biden's failure to act on this and calling Congress to act. One of the things Mayor Licardo has been wanting to try is passing a few ordinances around guns. He's really leaned in here. First, San Jose required all gun purchases to be recorded to ensure they were legal. And then just last month, the city instituted another rule. They say it's the first of its kind in the country. This ordinance will require gun owners to both have liability insurance and pay a fee 
to the city. And that money will fund gun safety initiatives. It's the beginning of a new kind of framework for gun safety. Less about gun control, more about harm reduction. Did you expect that you were going to finish out your time as mayor talking about gun violence? Not really. Uh, you know, I, although I'm a, I'm a criminal prosecutor by background, uh, this is not a particularly violent city. In fact, you know, I think we had the lowest homicide rate of any big city in the country last year. So why the push? Well, we've, we've been rocked by three mass shootings in the last three years. And, you know, as I delve deeper into this subject about guns and their impact on our community, you know, it recognizes that the headlines only tell a very small fraction of the harm and the devastation that families feel, whether it's uh, you know, suicide, which comprises the majority of gun-related deaths in our country, or unintentional shootings. You know, I talked to a, a mom who lost a son that way just a couple of years ago, and that, you know, about a little more than a third of emergency room admissions in this country result from unintentional shooting from guns. It's an interesting distinction you're drawing there. I feel like so much of the conversation around guns is centered on crime. And what you're saying is these are just kind of dangerous objects. And as a mayor, you end up encountering people who have been the victims of guns in all kinds of ways. Yes, uh, guns owned by law-abiding gun owners, uh, many of whom are quite well-intentioned. But the reality is there's a lot of harm that's resulting in it's preventable harm. It's harm that we can do something about. This new ordinance in San Jose, the best way to think about it may be as an experiment. And I say that not just because the rules are being challenged in court. I say that because in this city, there are just 55,000 gun-owning households, a fraction of the total population. So I want to go through step-by-step how you got to the place you are now. When you ran for mayor of San Jose, like, did you talk about gun control a lot? Was it your thing? No. And, you know, if if you did the polling, you'd probably find that it wouldn't be a a strong issue to be talking about because obviously it's divisive in every community. And, you know, it, it never really came up because I think the assumption has long been in this country that cities don't have any regulatory authority in this area. So it's just not a city issue. It's up to the states and and to Congress. And, you know, for the most part, Congress has sort of abdicated its responsibility here. So, you know, several years into office became obvious that no one else was going to do something we should try. I read that you started working on gun violence prevention in earnest after the shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in July 2019. Hey, shot, 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 shot! Deadly shooting at a food festival in Northern California. Three people killed, at least 15 injured. I had a couple of encounters after that horrible event. One with the mother of, of one of the, the two children who had been shot, who, who just you know posed a question that, that stuck with me in my mind, which was, can't you or can't anybody do anything about this? I had a much more contentious encounter, I remember, at a memorial where I think it was a relative who was, it may have been a cousin or a friend who was Spanish speaking, who confronted me very publicly and said, look, you guys talk a lot, but you don't really do anything. And she's right. What's the city doing about this? And, and, and that, that question just rang over and over in my head as I, as I thought about what we can do as a city, you know, is there... Is there some space here for us to be able to stand up for our residents? After the Garlic Festival, was the idea immediately, how do we find a way to extract money from gun owners? And what would that look like? Well, I I had been thinking for some time about this idea of gun insurance And it's not a new idea. It's not my idea. Other legislatures have proposed these things. So I thought a little bit about that. And then I realized, well, you know, that's nice, but it's not actually going to generate the resources we need to actually reduce gun harm. And so came up with this notion of of a fee along with it. 
you know, we all agree the Second Amendment protects the right for all of us to own or possess a gun, but it doesn't require taxpayers to subsidize that, right? And when people become aware of the fact that, hey, whether you own a gun or not, you're actually paying for this, you know, it starts to get folks thinking about, well, how can we better distribute the costs of gun ownership and gun harm? Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention, and unfortunately we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out, so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance, because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. Let's look now at the efforts to change laws and what we know about how well those laws work. Champ Barton is with The Trace, a news organization dedicated to reporting on gun violence. Champ, welcome to the News Hour, and thanks for being here. Let's talk about your reaction to that news we have now about the Indianapolis shooter. His first gun was confiscated. There was supposed to be a red flag, red flag hearing that never happened that might have prevented him from buying the other two weapons, is our understanding. So what happened here? There was a system in place, and it just didn't work? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, not entirely uncommon, um, that you have a system that in theory um, should prevent uh, one of these events from happening, um, but in execution, it falls short in some way. Um, I think the the sort of thing to note here is that uh, the it's not a sure thing that uh, implementing this red flag law and making a red flag determination and confiscating this guy's weapons and then preventing him from future purchases would have stopped him uh, from what he eventually ended up doing. Uh, it's entirely possible that he could have bought a gun on the private market afterwards. Uh, but certainly this red flag determination could have made a difference. So put some of these headlines into context for us. We've been seeing report after report of group shooting after group shooting. There was this sense that during the pandemic or lockdown that gun violence dropped. Is that actually what happened? What does the data show? Yeah, so that's actually not what happened. Uh, gun violence was at a higher rate last year than it had been in any of the previous five, uh, maybe more years. All the years that we had on record, we published a, a story on this recently. Um, but yeah, gun violence has been higher than ever. Even mass shootings, you know, as defined by uh, the Gun Violence Archive as more four or more people injured or killed, um, not including the shooter, even those were up higher than they'd ever been. Um, so gun violence has been uh, uh, surging throughout the pandemic. And most frequently, it's not these sorts of incidents like we see uh, in Indianapolis, where it is a sort of lone uh, style shooter we've seen before and that has sort of captured the fascination uh, of the country. Uh, it's more frequently uh, sort of more routine uh, gun deaths that happen as part of community conflicts uh, in cities across the country. And, and like I just said, those deaths were, were sort of um, higher than they'd ever been last year. So when you talk about gun violence in America, who are some of the communities who are deeply and more disproportionately impacted? Yeah, I mean, it's predominantly uh, city neighborhoods that are majority black and majority low income uh, that are affected uh, by this kind of gun violence. Um, and this is true of the mass shooting violence that we see in the country. Uh, and it's also true of the sort of drumbeat of regular gun violence that we see. Um, the only thing where uh, the only form of gun violence where uh, black people are not uh, sort of the disproportionate or don't accept the disproportionate share of the deaths uh, is suicides, um, which these red flag laws uh, do have a chance and, and have proven uh, in some studies to be pretty effective at reducing. We do know that these mass attacks do tend to generate a lot of attention, though, right? And the president has been asked about it. He called these latest spike in shootings a national embarrassment. And President Biden has also introduced some executive action when it comes to addressing gun violence, right? When you look at those steps he's taken, what kind of a difference would those make in addressing our gun violence problem? Most of them were not any, any new laws uh, that would exist on the books immediately. Uh, they were suggestions or, you know, they, he was requiring the Department of Justice uh, to put together uh, laws 
that would prevent certain things, but we don't have an idea of what those laws would look like. Uh, there was also an ask that uh, the federal government put together sort of some boilerplate red flag law uh, model legislation that other states could adopt. But again, that would not uh, necessitate that these states adopt the law. The one thing that the one executive action that uh, would absolutely um, have an effect, it would seem, at least according to researchers and activists, um, is that he pledged $5 billion uh, to support community gun violence interventions. Um, and that is more money than has ever been proposed to uh, address these sorts of problems. And it's more money that's ever been proposed to invest into these communities that experience the vast majority of this gun violence. Uh, and there is a ro pretty robust research to suggest that the interventions that would be targeted with this money uh, would have an effect on, uh, on reducing uh, the number of shootings and gun deaths that happen in these cities like we talked about before. What about the NRA? Um, with them now in bankruptcy proceedings, is there a sense that their influence is waning with lawmakers? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. It's absolutely true that the NRA is sort of weaker than it's ever been um, as a result of all the things you just mentioned. Um, However, the Republican Party has sort of absorbed the NRA's talking points and uh, this idea of sort of gun rights absolutism. Um, and that is the party line now. Um, and I don't think, um, at least, you know, this is just my personal opinion, I don't see a, a real reason to be super optimistic um, that the party line is going to shift simply because the NRA is weaker, because this has become sort of a Republican Party platform plank uh, as much as it already is sort of an NRA plank. So the city council voted last month on this ordinance, and it requires gun owners in San Jose to carry liability insurance and also to pay an annual $25 fee, a harm reduction fee. Some of these things, the fee seems a little bit new to me. The insurance seems like something people may already have through homeowners insurance or something like that. So tell me how this ordinance will change things. Yeah, all fair. So let me start with the insurance. It is true that many uh, homeowners and renters already have liability insurance for possession of guns. They may not be reporting the guns to the insurance companies as they ought to be. It all depends, obviously, on the policy. But this is insurance that's widely available. We want to make sure that, first of all, folks have it because that's important to compensate those who are injured and harmed by guns. But also because when you notify the insurance company, the insurance company can start to ask questions like, do you have a gun safe? Do you have a trigger lock? Have you taken gun safety classes? And those kinds of actions can help to reduce the premium for the insured, just as drivers got safe driver discounts on our premiums. We, we got discounts back in the day when they came out with anti-lock brakes and airbags and other kinds of devices that have made driving safer. In fact, we've seen on a per mile basis that the fatalities related to automobiles have dropped about 80% over the last five decades. And part of that, a big part of that is insurance companies that are incentivizing people to be safer, to drive safer cars. So in the same way, we're hoping that insurance companies will really get in the game, roll up their sleeves, uh, not just obviously San Jose does this, but hopefully as more cities and states do it. The $25 fee, what will that go towards? Like who decides what it goes toward? Yeah, really important question. So we're forming a, a 501c3 foundation, which is going to receive the dollars. And it, the board, uh, which will be comprised of a host of folks, including, for example, a Stanford professor who's an epidemiologist who, who's been focused on gun harm and nonprofit experts who understand domestic violence prevention programs, suicide prevention. We've invited and at least one member of a gun group has actually joined uh, this effort to create this nonprofit because we want organizations representing gun owners to be at the table, helping us to understand how do we best communicate, how we best invest. And overwhelmingly, and I'd say entirely under the, under the ordinance, these dollars are going to serve occupants of gun-owning households or significant others who are in relationship with those who own guns. How? Uh, well, a letter will go out to all gun-owning households and say, hey, you got a gun. Here's a lot of services that are available to you. Mental health, suicide prevention, 
domestic violence prevention, gun safety classes, whatever it might be that that is evidence-based that shows that we can reduce gun violence, right? Here's a host of services. And by the way, here's your obligation. You got to pay a $25 fee. Hmm. So it's it's almost like joining a club. Yeah. And look, I don't pretend to believe these are overwhelmingly folks who are willing to want to do this. I recognize that this is uh, by government fiat and, and many would prefer not to pay the fee. But if we're in the business of reducing harm and devastation from guns, you go to where the risk is. How much are you expecting that people will pay this fee? Is there an enforcement mechanism? What happens if they don't? Yeah, important question. So it's a, it's a civil requirement. We have not created a criminal sanction here for, for various reasons. Uh, so anyone who doesn't comply will pay a fine. In terms of enforcement, how that happens, what we see right now in the judicial landscape and the Supreme Court looks like they're about to invalidate New York's concealed carry restrictions. Uh, California also had concealed carry permit requirements. And when those get pushed aside, as we expect they will, we're going to have a lot more law enforcement encountering people with guns out on the street, in bars and nightclubs. You can imagine a host of different venues where a police officer would really like to have the ability to remove a gun from a potentially combustible situation. For example, there's a bar brawl and, you know, they're patting down everybody after the cops have arrived and someone's got a gun. Have you paid your fee? Do you have insurance? No. Okay. Well, there's an opportunity for us to remove the gun. And then when the, the gun owner comes back and demonstrates that they've complied with the law and they're a lawful gun owner, they get their gun back. But in the meantime, you've taken a gun out of a bar brawl. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Stop Gun Violence, a Valentine's Day plea from the heart. Valentine's Day is when we're supposed to give heart-shaped boxes of chocolates and flowers to those we love. For Manuel Oliver, Valentine's Day is something different. His 17-year-old son, Joaquin, was shot and killed that day in 2018 at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Guac, as Joaquin was affectionately known, was one of 17 people killed in the massacre perpetrated by a lone gunman, a former student armed with a semi-automatic weapon. 17 others were wounded. That's why Manny Oliver, in the cold pre-dawn darkness at 4 a.m. this Valentine's Day, was clambering up a 150-foot construction crane just a block from the White House carrying a message from his heart for President Biden. 45,000 people died from gun violence on your watch, read the banner that Manny and another activist unfurled. It also had a portrait of Joaquin and a website, shockmarket.org, which a coalition of three gun control groups, March for Our Lives, Guns Down America, and Change the Ref, developed to pressure the Biden administration to act. Manny sent out a video from the crane as the sun rose over Washington, with the National Mall and the Washington Monument behind him. So the whole world will listen to Joaquin today. It's very hard to make out Manny's words in the wind. The whole world will listen to Joaquin today, he says. He goes on, he has a very important message. I asked for a meeting with Joe Biden a month ago. I never got that meeting, so now I'm back with Joaquin. Now you're going to have to deal with him. Good luck with that. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you. From Joaquin Oliver, Manny said. A lot of police presence. As police gathered below, Joaquin's mother, Patricia Oliver, and Parkland massacre survivor David Hogg, a classmate of Joaquin's, readied another banner nearby, this one an electronic message board mounted on a truck. It, too, highlighted shockmarket.org. Everyone, today, it is the four-year anniversary of what happened in Parkland for 17 of our classmates and teachers were shot and killed in our high school. That's David Hogg, now a student at Harvard University, in a video. Today we're in front of the White House, 
and going to be driving around with this truck talking about the number of gun deaths and injuries that have happened since Biden took office. He's promised a number of things that he could do as president right now, but has yet to do so through executive action. We are demanding that he takes action to save lives before the next Parkland happens. Shock market is a play on stock market. The activists want the Biden administration to monitor gun violence statistics as seriously as the countless economic indicators that drive so much policy in Washington. The mobile billboard David Hogg drove through D.C. displayed the following figures, taken from the independent, nonpartisan gun violence archive, current as of Valentine's Day, beginning from Biden's inauguration on January 20, 2021. Gun deaths, 47,734. Gun injuries, 42,641. Mass shootings, 718. Minors killed, 1,652. Minors injured, 4,387. Unintentional shootings, 2,057. Murder-suicides, 650. Any one of these figures is shocking. Together, they paint a grim picture of gun violence in U.S. society. We're truly unique in the world, with hundreds of millions of guns in circulation, many designed for the sole purpose of killing human beings. The shock market activists are demanding President Biden establish a National Office of Gun Violence Prevention, that there be public investment in community-based gun violence intervention programs, that the federal government hold the gun industry accountable, and that Biden use the bully pulpit of his office to drive the issue of gun violence prevention onto the national agenda. They've issued Biden a deadline of the State of the Union address to offer a detailed plan of action. The NRA has long dominated the political landscape around gun control, ensuring that no meaningful legislation passes through Congress. In recent years, though, the NRA has been rocked by scandal, with its head, Wayne LaPierre, and other executives caught spending on lavish personal trips and clothing, according to leaked financial documents obtained by the pro-gun news website The Reload. The NRA's membership has dropped by half in the past five years and spent 20 percent of its budget fighting its mounting legal problems. Meanwhile, nine families of victims and one survivor of the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, this week announced an historic $73 million settlement with Remington, the now-defunct manufacturer of the semi-automatic rifle used to kill the 26- to 7-year-old children and six staff members at that school shooting. Manny Oliver's peaceful Valentine's Day protest atop the crane ended with his arrest. The organization he and his wife founded in Joaquin's memory, Change the Ref, posted a photo of Manny being led away in handcuffs with the caption, A father's work is never done. We've just heard clips today, starting with What's Next, speaking with a Sandy Hook parent about their activism of the past decade. The Rachel Maddow Show explained the recent settlement won by the Sandy Hook parents against Remington. Democracy Now! spoke with David Hogg about his activism since surviving the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school shooting. What's Next? spoke with the mayor of San Jose about their first-in-the-nation measures to require insurance and impose a fee on gun owners. The PBS NewsHour looked at the disproportionate impact of gun violence on lower-income black neighborhoods and what Biden executive orders could be impactful. What's Next went into more detail about the benefits of requiring gun insurance, and Breaking the Sound Barrier told the story of the banner drop near the White House on Valentine's Day demanding more action on gun control. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The David Pakman Show highlighting a single story that exemplifies negligent gun use. When it comes to accidentally firing a gun... We really shouldn't be using the word accidental. We should be using the word negligent. We should be using the word reckless. I don't think accidentally is really the right word that we should be using here. 
and The Brian Lehrer Show dug into some of the policies in place in New York City and new ones being proposed. A lot of times what they'll talk about is, yes, police, you know, more police on the street. I think about it. I'm aware of it. But it's not necessarily a deterrent for me because I'd rather be in jail than dead. So they're looking, their gun carrying behavior, we know this, is driven by fear of their own deaths and, and the fear, you know, for their family members. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, just a final comment today. I want to mention that obviously we are all aware of the recent news coming out of Ukraine, and... As is the nature of this show, we do not trade in hot takes and uh, first impressions, and so it is going to seem as though we are relatively silent on the topic for the time being, but I can assure you we are already working on pulling together information that properly contextualizes Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If you have thoughts on that or anything else, as always, you can keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at Best of Left com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com